Hello, brothers, sisters, and friends, and welcome to the You Are the Current Resident podcast. This is the official podcast of the National Association of Letter Carriers, the union that represents 280,000 active and retired city letter carriers employed by the United States Postal Service. I am Ed Morgan, and sitting next to me is our national president, Brian Renfro. Hey, Brian, how are you doing this week? Hey, Eddie, I'm doing good. I'm sure you haven't forgotten, but just to remind you, it's now 12 and a half games. <laughs> the lead mounts, the lead mounts. Go Phils. We have a couple special guests that are going to be on at the end of the episode, so make sure you stay tuned to listen to them. Brian, can you tell us who those people are? Yeah, we're, we're really excited on this Labor Day episode of the podcast to bring something a little bit different. And we've got two great guests kind of working with what we want the theme of this podcast to be, which is just uh, we often, including you and I, get uh, stuck in, you know, our day-to-day worlds and, and what we do within our union. But I think it's important for us to remember the bigger picture of the labor movement that we're a part of in this country. So we decided today to do something different and bring on a couple of guests. So we're really happy to uh, later on, you'll get to hear from the executive director of the Writers Guild of America East, uh, Lowell Peterson, and those folks are currently on strike. There are people that almost everyone listening to this podcast will be familiar with their work, but you may not be aware that uh, they are the people that actually do the work. So I think that'll be a very interesting interview for you to hear. And then we will also uh, be joined by the president of the AFL-CIO, Liz Schuler, who is a great friend and, and sister to me personally, but you know, certainly also to letter carriers. And she's the, the leader of the American labor movement in this country as a president of the AFL-CIO. So Liz will give us a great perspective on what's going on all around us in terms of our movement as a whole and uh, do a little bit of history and, and get into also some of the current battles and, and victories that we've had recently. So this should be a fun episode, a little bit different, but hopefully something that the listeners will enjoy. I know after we're done recording this, you're out of the building. Where are you headed to? Yeah, a couple of things. Um, We're recording. This is the week prior to Labor Day. And I know on the previous episode, we talked all about the the crime issues that we face and the robberies that we've seen of our members that we've seen, unfortunately, continue to increase. And we did an event, I guess, about three weeks ago now in Chicago, where the theme was enough is enough. We got a lot of local media there. Uh, We went in depth about that on a previous episode. So as soon as we get done recording here, I am going to Cincinnati, Ohio, and our brothers and sisters there in Branch 43 and President Ted Thompson have organized a similar event that uh, we're going to take some time this evening to get some local media involved and try to get the word out and raise that awareness of the crime issues we're experiencing there. So as we talked about on that episode in depth, that's only one piece of the solution. And we're still actively working every day on all the other things that we need to do. But getting the word out to people through the media and and to the folks that we serve and, you know, just the general public is an important piece. So we look forward to doing that here tonight. Ted Thompson, a really good branch president and the envy of all beard growers everywhere. He's got a tremendous beard. Ted's a beard champion for sure. Thanks for putting that on, Ted. So I just want to first say happy Labor Day to everyone. I want to take a minute and say hello to all our branches out there this weekend that might be involved in some kind of Labor Day festivity. I especially want to send some good vibes and sunny weather. It seems like every time I went, it would rain uh, to my branches back in Philadelphia who are walking in our local parade. It was one of the my and my family's favorite union events each year. 
I hope each of you take a minute to think about those who came before us and fought tooth and nail for the rights and benefits we have and for those who defend those rights today. Thank your steward. Thank your union leaders. I'd also like to say uh, hello for all those carriers that had to work today. I hope your work day goes smoothly and safely. I hope you get to enjoy your holiday and maybe make it home in time to catch some barbecue with your family and friends. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the overall labor movement and how the NALC fits in. I sat down earlier this week, like usual, and came up with some questions that our members might have. If I didn't ask the question that you might have had, you can ask your question through our Ask the Mailbag segment. Submit your questions by emailing us at social at NALC.org. Now that my filibuster is over, Bri, you ready for some questions? I am, and your filibuster was very well said. Thanks. Number one, nationally. How do we work with the AFL-CIO? Sure. So the AFL-CIO is the federation here domestically in America where the vast majority of unions in America belong. And and we'll get into detail with President Schuler later on in the episode. But NALC is affiliated with the AFL along with dozens of other national unions as well as as state federations of the AFL-CIO and some what we call central labor councils, which are more localized. We work in a variety of ways. I sit on the executive council of the AFL-CIO, and that's where all the presidents from the larger unions are able to get together and discuss issues that are big picture related to unions and workers and the labor movement in this country. But then there's also beyond just that governance piece, there's a ton of interaction with other unions, obviously with the other postal unions, which we'll talk more about in a minute. But definitely with, you know, we all have common issues. There's some unions we have more in common with than others in terms of our issues, but we still all work together to support one another and stand in solidarity. And ultimately, you know, our overarching goal is to advance whatever causes we can advance for working people in this country. And it's exciting for us as a union to be able to be a big part of that. How do we communicate with the other postal unions to make sure we're on the same side of the legislative and political issues we all face? Yeah, so our our legislative and political issues are pretty much lockstep when it comes to our sister postal unions, the American Postal Workers Union, the National Postal Mail Handlers Union, and the National Rural Letter Carriers Association. We do work closely with them. I communicate with their presidents frequently, our legislative and political staffs uh, among the, the four unions have close relationships, and we try to definitely coordinate everything from what we do in terms of trying to get postal and, and postal worker-friendly candidates elected to what we do with potential legislation on the Hill to dealing with things like nominations to the Postal Regulatory Commission and the Board of Governors and, you know, the White House, the administration, the Congress. So, you know, all of those things um, that that we'll probably on a later episode really get in depth on just the, the reasons why we have to be involved in that. But in short, they have a significant amount of power and potential influence over the Postal Service, our employer, and therefore our jobs. So it's really important that we work together with them. We have a great working relationship now. There have been times, not in the recent past, um, but in years past, where those relationships have been frayed from time to time, but I'm really happy to say that that has not been the case in a number of years now, and, and our relationship now is strong. We're able to, to work together, and, you know, we don't always agree right off the bat, but, you know, we're able to discuss and come to consensus and, and really present a united front when it comes to dealing with the legislative and political issues that affect 
you know, all of our unions and the members that we represent. Do we talk to the other postal unions about their negotiations? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of similarities, of course, and and what one union does has an influence on what the other union is able to achieve in bargaining. So from that standpoint, we definitely coordinate and there's a, you know, an effort made through communication and discussions that that we definitely don't want to do anything and, and nor do our our sister unions in negotiations it could potentially harm the efforts of one of our other unions. So, you know, while we we haven't bargained together, in a long time now, almost 30 years, there is a lot of coordination. There's a lot of discussion. We're the only union that's currently in negotiation. So I hear from them pretty often. They like to, you know, ask how things are going, obviously, both to understand for themselves, you know, going forward, looking to their next round of bargaining, but but also a, a stand and, you know, to stand in solidarity with us because victories through collective bargaining for one union can often turn into or set the stage for improvements to be made by the other unions in their next round of negotiation. So yes, we do. We don't bargain together, um, but there is a lot of communication and, and coordination to be sure that, you know, we are advancing the things that are common and that we, most importantly, don't do things that might have some unforeseen adverse impact on another union. So that is a relationship that we've had for a number of years now with each of those unions and um, through leadership transitions and that type of stuff recently, you know, those relationships have remained strong. So we're really grateful and appreciative of the opportunity to uh, engage with them and, and have those type of relationships. Do we have that same kind of relationship with the other federal unions? A little different, but yes, we do. The collective bargaining piece is not quite as, uh, it doesn't line up in terms of commonalities as much with other federal unions as it does with the other postal unions because they have different employers at other agencies of the federal government. But of course, there are a lot of issues, be it legislative, political, some regulatory things that, that happen within the government that can have an impact on all federal employees, including postal employees. So when those type things come along, there's a lot of coordination. We have a a, a group called the Federal Postal Coalition that includes staff and, and legislative and political leaders from a lot of different unions that represent postal and federal employees. Those folks communicate frequently. We often sign on to letters and statements of support for issues that they may have, and they would do the same for us. So, you know, it's a similar relationship in that we stand in solidarity, and they stand in solidarity with us, just as we do with the other postal unions. It's just that the issues tend to differ a little bit. They're typically more centered around legislative causes and potential changes to things like employee benefits that, while in our case are are subject to collective bargaining, just the fact that we have different employers might cause that to differ a little bit from what we had with the postal unions. But there is a lot of coordination, and uh, we enjoy good relationships with our brothers and sisters and the other unions that represent federal employees. Do we keep tabs on what's going on in the international mailing community? We do, and it's actually a really timely question. The AFL-CIO we talked about just a minute ago is our domestic federation of the unions in the United States, and we're also part of a international federation called Union Network International, or UNI, UNI, and that includes a lot of unions from all over the world. And within UNI, they divide the unions and the, the industries that we work in into different sectors. And there is a postal and logistics sector where we, along with our sister union, the APWU, 
and then a number of, of unions from different countries that represent employees that work in uh, postal services all over the world get together and we discuss what's going on. And it typically includes things like collective bargaining. Sometimes there are a lot of other countries, for example, have had to fight and unfortunately have had to fight through privatization, their postal services, which thankfully that's not been something that's been a huge issue for us in the very recent past. There's been some threats there going back five, six, seven years ago. It was the administration that was in the White House at the time. There was a desire to do that. Thankfully, there's not that now. But that, those are just a couple of examples of type things that we talk about. And, and here recently, just a few days ago, UNI, Union Network International, had its, every four years, they have a international conference. It's sort of like a convention. They call it a World Congress. And as a part of that uh, World Congress, there was also a meeting of the Uni Post and Logistics Unions, that sector. And we were happy to host that that meeting here at our building at NELC headquarters in Washington. The World Congress was up in Eddie's hometown of Philadelphia, so um, NELC had a, a delegation there. But it was great to have our brothers and sisters from all over the world that represent employees that work in different postal services around the world in our building and to discuss a lot of the issues that are going on. So there's a, a lot of commonality uh, in some areas, and, and we're, you know, we just think it's always important for us as, as well as the other unions to practice kind of the principles of solidarity that's that over time has proven both domestically here and internationally. That's what makes union strong is numbers and, and our ability to stand together. So you learn a lot. You gain a lot of interesting perspective when you hear about things that are going on in other countries, and that's valuable. And we are definitely happy and to be a part of you know our international federation and enjoy the work and I think really profit from the work that we're able to do with them. Nationally, do we work with CLUE, Coalition of Labor Union Women? Yeah, we do. We've got several officers and staff here at NALC that uh, attend CLUE's convention. That's just a, a one you know, another group there. We've got a, we also work with CBTU, the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists. So there's a number of different labor coalitions. Some are, are focused, um, as these two that we just mentioned, on you know, a more specific segment and advancing what uh, the, the impacts within the larger labor movement that we may see or be able to improve in a positive way on that particular segment. But we try to be involved with anything we can to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters and, you know, have them reciprocate that to support the things that we need to do. Can you explain to the average letter carrier what a state association in, in the NALC world is? Sure. So we are structured as a union based in our constitution. Most people are familiar with our branch structure. That's your local union. And uh, the branches are really responsible for that day-to-day representation, as well as a number of other things. But that's the core of of what they do. We also have state associations. And uh, our state associations are created and they exist for the purpose of advancing NALC's legislative and political agenda. Our world, you know, there's obviously a lot of branches out there that, that are involved legislatively and politically, but they also have a lot of other responsibilities in representation and organizing and things like that. And this is a change that was made a number of years ago, uh, a constitutional amendment that I think has proven to be really successful for us because it lines up with a lot of the other groups we work with, we mentioned the AFL-CIO. They have state federations in each state. A lot of our state associations work with those state feds. Therefore, they work with a number of unions at the state level. 
you know, obviously from a federal election standpoint, almost everything is state-based, whether it's elections for our senators or our members of Congress, and of course in a presidential election, the Electoral College makes states important. So uh, when that change was made back in the uh, mid-2000s, I think that's proven to be a, a positive change for us and really strengthen our legislative and, and political network. And, you know, we're, we're now continue to try to improve that network through some of the resources we provide from here at headquarters for our state associations, mostly our legislative and political organizers. And we'll continue to do everything we can to, you know, strengthen that network. And But the core of that network when it comes to legislative and political activism within the NALC is those state associations. You know, grievances aren't your gig. The state association is a great place for letter carriers to get involved. Absolutely. Uh, how does the relationship with our branches and local labor councils work? The local labor councils, uh, they're typically called central labor councils, CLCs, and it's um, sort of the local component of the AFL-CIO where you'll have locals from a number of different unions that are active together, and they, they focus on a lot of different things. Well, most of it, probably the majority, is legislative and politically focused. In some cases, that'll be more locally focused or state legislature. That's something in the NALC we do not get involved in very much because they just frankly don't have a ton of impact on our members because we're we're governed by federal law. When it comes to political stuff, our constitution directs us to use our, our PAC money that our members contribute for only for federal races. So but it's not just legislative and political. There's also, you know, issues that may be taking place that be it a stand in solidarity. I'll give you the crime thing we're experiencing right now in a lot of these locations. Our branches have done a really good job of banding together and utilizing the other unions through those local labor councils. But there's a, a number of different ways to be involved. There's a lot of our branches that are involved and contribute. You know, they affiliate and pay money for each of their members to be part of them. There's others that, um, you know, do it more through activism uh, based on, you know, finances and stuff like that. So that those are, are strong relationships that just like we will talk about with President Schuler a little later on with what we do with the labor movement as a whole, just more locally focused, you know, where our branches are involved in those in those central labor councils. Do we have any involvement with those that are trying to form unions like Amazon workers or Starbucks employees? Yeah, definitely. Um, organizing in America is good for us. Now, I think it's important to first look at the fact that we're different from private sector unions and that uh, most private sector unions and that we're an open shop. So members, we represent all city carriers, whether they're members of the NALC or not. Now, 93% of them voluntarily choose to join the NALC. But these organizing campaigns, you know, while we are not really out there organizing the members in terms of making them members of NALC, the fact is when it comes to collective bargaining, what is going on around us in terms of wages and benefits of employees in the private sector has an impact on our collective bargaining. And the best way, this is proven over a long period of time, for employees to make gains in wages and benefits is to be part of a union. 
So we stand in solidarity. We support the efforts of, of unions that are out there trying to organize people like the two you mentioned have been in the news a lot recently, Amazon and, and Starbucks. And, and there's others, but those are, are two kind of well-known brands that where, where there's a lot of activity around organizing. And, and we work directly with them. We've sent our members out to be involved in some of those organizing campaigns. And then we also hear at the national level talk a, a good bit within the AFL-CIO and the other unions just about what the best strategy is for us to put ourselves in the best position to organize some of these people. And and one more thing I'll add that's sort of related. Um, There's a lot of money out there that's come from some of the legislation that's passed in recent years. The CHIPS Act is one. We think about you know, the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure bill that passed. So there's a lot of investment money that's that's been appropriated by Congress to improve investment in technology, investment in infrastructure, things like bridges and roads and stuff like that. So there's a very concerted effort within the unions in the AFL-CIO to ensure that as that money is deployed, as we start to see these projects get underway, that we do everything we can to organize the people that are working on those and be sure that it is union workers that are utilizing that money and and working on these projects. And that's important because as as we go forward, as I mentioned, the impact of what workers around us make and and their pay and their benefits, that has an impact on us. And beyond just sort of our selfish view of how it can help us, we just simply feel like it's the right thing to do, to stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters. So that stuff is, is exciting. We've seen a renewed sense in this country of support for unions and, you know, advancement of what we can do in the labor movement. We feel that currently in our collective bargaining. Uh, we, we feel that, you know, we're going to be able to make significant progress. So we talked about that a lot on, in an earlier episode, but there's a lot of momentum here and, and we'll get into that a little more with President Schuler later on in the episode. So what can a rank and file member do to support the labor movement in their everyday life? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of things. We mentioned the CLCs locally, you know, the NLC website, First off, pay attention to the, the tools that we have out there, our mobile app. You can download it if you don't have it, your postal record, our website, NELC.org. We like to, through the app, we'll send out push notifications about from time to time things that may be going on locally where you can step up and come out and support our brothers and sisters. But also the AFL's website, it's AFLCIO.org, has a lot of information about, you know, different campaigns and things like that that are going on. And just simply, you know, look, follow us on social media, follow the AFLCIO on social media. I think we're in a good way seeing unions more and more in the news. So there's plenty of opportunities there. But I'd say pay attention to those things and then communicate with your leadership at your branch level or, or your state association. You can always call your NBA offices. And I can promise you, no matter where you are in 2023, if there's, if you have a desire to get involved and support, that there will be an opportunity for you to do so. And we'll be more than happy to, to connect you. Welcome back to You Are the Current Resident, the official podcast of the NELC. And this is a piece of our Labor Day special. So on this episode, we uh, have heard from various union leaders around the country, and we're pleased to have the executive director of the Writers Guild of America East, Lowell Peterson, with us. Lowell, thanks for taking some time to join us. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks very much, brother. 
Sure. So let's start here. My members and and really almost everyone in this country is likely familiar with the work that your members do, but they may not know that. So why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about your union, who your members are and uh, the the work that they do. Well, we're a union uh, at the Writers Guild of America East. We have East of the Mississippi, our sister union in L.A. is the Writers Guild of America West. And together we represent nearly 12,000 TV and movie writers. They write the comedies, the crime shows, the feature films that you enjoy on TV. They write the uh, late night comedy variety shows like Colbert and, and Fallon and so forth. And pretty much every big budget show that you see on TV or on the big streaming services, if it's if it's American, it's going to be written by, by one of our members or, or multiple members. Sometimes there'll be a lot of members on a given uh, TV series or streaming show. We also represent a lot of people who write news for TV and radio and online, but they're not on on strike. It's the entertainment side where we're having a little trouble at the bargaining table. Yeah, so I think it's been in the news, and and I'm sure most of our listeners are familiar with the fact that our brothers and sisters with SAG-AFTRA, as well as you guys, have been engaged in labor disputes here recently and have now been on strike for, I guess we could call it an extended period of time at this point. Why don't you give us a little background on what led to the current labor dispute, and then maybe we'll get into some of the specifics. Sure. You know, the the industry has changed a lot, and I'm sure that your members know that because the way that they get to watch shows and movies has changed so much. Our contract has been negotiated over generations. You know, it's, it's a very heavily unionized sector of the economy. And our contract was negotiated back in the old analog TV days, you know, Gunsmoke and Hill Street Blues and Law and Order. And what's happened is digital technology has changed everything. Now it's mostly a world of streaming video on demand. That's where you watch shows. That's where you watch movies increasingly. And the the hiring patterns, you know, the way that the stuff that our members do, the way it gets sort of commissioned in the first place, the way it gets produced, the way people get hired to do the work, the way it gets distributed and how much people get paid. All that's different now. The whole industry has transformed and our contract has not transformed. So what we're really faced with is a threat to the ability of writers to make a living doing what they're doing. We have contract provisions that work great uh, under the old business model. And, uh, you know, when it was just the big three TV networks and a few movie studios, now you've got multinational corporations that have changed everything up. Netflix has changed everything up. You've got the big tech companies sitting literally across the bargaining table from us. Apple, Amazon, they're sitting at the bargaining table. They've got a very different philosophy. So what our members have told us, and we've prepared for these negotiations over the course of a long time, was, hey, you know, I'm not getting hired for as long. There's a longer gap between my gigs. You know, I worked for this series. It used to be I'd write for a show that was on basically all year, 22 episodes. Now I work right on a show that has eight episodes. And then I have to wait a long time till I get my next gig. My pay rate's going down. One of the things that you do when you write for a, one of these major productions is as the thing gets rerun or stays up online longer, you get something called residuals, which is pay for the additional value the companies get. Those residuals have gone down. So middle-class writing, it is a middle-class profession. It's an exciting job, but, you know, it's a middle-class job. It's become harder and harder to sustain it. So our members said, look, you got to do something. You know, this is not a a negotiation where you get an extra 3% and everybody's going to be happy. You've got to change the structure of how we get paid. You've got to do something to protect our ability to just earn our pension and health benefits, to pay our bills. Even if we're working shorter, we shouldn't be turned into a sort of a hobby. So 
we had an ambitious bargaining agenda, but the members were 100% behind it. The agenda came from the members. It's a bottom-up kind of agenda. And, you know, the studios, including the big tech companies and extraordinarily profitable companies, as you can imagine, you pay those streaming bills every month, you know how much money they're making. Plus, you have to watch ads. So they, they have plenty of money to address our demands, but they thought, no, we're just going to say no. We'll give them the 3%. We'll give them more than 3%. We'll give them 5%. But we're not going to address those structural issues. So, you know, we came to contract expiration time. The negotiating committee, we all looked at each other and said, well, we have no choice. The members had already authorized the strike by an enormous, nearly 98% margin. And we said, okay, the members have spoken. We better go out. That was May 1. And we've been out ever since. Tremendous solidarity, by the way, from all the other unions. You know, you've got... On any given TV show or, or movie production, you know, you've got a lot of unions involved. You've got drivers who are the Teamsters. You've got crew members who are IATSE. You've got the actors. You've got a lot of people. This is a high employment part of the industry. And people are saying, hey, I believe in what the writers are doing. And a lot of people refuse to cross our picket lines. And a lot of people show up on our picket lines. People from the NALC, people from the teachers, people from across the labor movement have been showing up just to express their support because they say, hey, you know, we can't let these big companies destroy a career. People have invested themselves in having a career doing what they care about. They've learned the skills. They've worked their way up the career ladder. You can't let these companies just say, no, nah, no more. We're going to make this a part-time job. We've had a lot of support. It's been great. Yeah, it's it's been a lot of, I think we, as you said, we've seen Really, really you know, strong efforts on the solidarity front through the AFL-CIO. I, I know you joined us at our executive council meeting a few weeks ago. And thankfully, for the first time in a long time, I think the support for labor as a whole in this country seems to be on the rise, you know, based on politically from the administration and, and their support and, and just the victories that we see from a number of different unions around the country. So uh, that spirit of solidarity, I, I know, is really important for you guys and your ongoing struggle. and will continue to be important. Where are we right now with the negotiations? Are there certain issues that remain that are still big sticking points? Or I know it's, as you said, it was May 1st, which was several months ago, and you guys have worked hard literally every day since then. What's the, the current status? Yeah, we've, we've been still hard at work. The, co- the companies refused to talk to us at all for over 100 days. They didn't want to meet with us. They didn't want to exchange proposals. You know, we made a little bit of progress before strike deadline, but just not on the core issues. And so last week we went back to the bargaining table in L.A. and uh, they gave us a counter proposal that a couple of tweaks to where they were, but just fell far short of what our members say they need to have. We need job protections. We need length of employment protections. We need protections on the residuals that I talked about. We need there's comedy variety writers, those late night shows that, that make us all laugh and maybe give us more straight news than we get from the news business. Um, You know, they they don't have any provisions in this new streaming world. So we got to do that. There's also artificial intelligence, you know, AI, this new generative AI stuff. What does it do? It writes stuff. You know, our members are very worried about that. So we're negotiating, trying to negotiate guardrails and say, you know, you can't replace writers with computers. And we just didn't make progress in any of that stuff. So we, we had a frustrating week. Then the, the big, corporate CEO sat down with us earlier this week and said, you really should take our deal. And we said, no, you've got to, you've got to address what we're, what we've brought to you. We're, we're not making this up. So we're, you know, we're going to continue to negotiate. 
the actors, as, as you mentioned, the, the actors are, uh, are out on strike two. So it's not like there's any shows being made. These studios have just got to sort of wake up and realize that they've got to address the needs of the people who make the stuff that enable them to make profits. You know, if you don't have writers, you don't have stories, you don't have scripts, you don't have anything to make. Obviously, if you don't have actors, you don't have any stories either. So the fact that people have been willing, my members and actors members have been willing to to really sacrifice a lot. You know, nobody's getting any, not, nobody's been paid for almost four months now. The fact that people are willing to do that says, hey, these are real issues. And the studios just need to face up and negotiate, roll up their sleeves and say, okay, we don't want to give you what you want, but we know that you need it. So we will negotiate with you in good faith. We'll see. You know, we'll see. I, I, I'll i tell you, I'm out on the picket lines every day. Members are standing strong. Our support from labor remains strong. It is, as you mentioned, you know, there's a, there's a, a sense in the country that this is a sort of a hot union summer. You know, there's People are saying it's time to, to exercise our power a little bit and not just take whatever deal they want to give us. And that's I, that's inspiring to me as a lifelong labor person. You know, it's like, hey, people, members are willing to fight. And that's what makes the difference. And uh, we're going to fight until we get it done. Could be a week, could be a month, could be longer. I, I hope not, but we're not going to cave. And look, I couldn't agree more. I mean, even you know, with my union, we're currently engaged in collective bargaining and we're obviously different because we're in the public sector and yeah. we don't have the right to strike and that yeah. type of thing. But, you know, you still feel that solidarity and this sort of sweeping spirit that you mentioned. I think that's a really good word to use to describe it. You, you mentioned AI. and I know you guys are always in the organizing business with um, bringing on different bargaining units. And, and you mentioned that's really been a transformative you know, last few years for your industry, but things like AI, there's even more technology that's kind of coming down the pipeline. And, and I know you've had some victories here recently, both uh, in organizing and as well as gaining some protections with some of your bargaining units against some of that stuff. So I want to fill us in a little bit of uh, what's taking place there. Yeah, we've been organizing like crazy. In fact, the membership of the Writers Guild of America East has doubled in the last 10 years. And We've organized in a, a lot of sectors that are sort of adjacent to where we currently are. For example, reality TV, nonfiction TV. A lot of people like to watch those shows. That stuff is totally, was totally non-union. So as you can imagine, the conditions were horrible. We've got, I think, eight big shops now where the, there were zero before. Uh, we've organized in uh, digital news. You know, when we went in, we started organizing there almost 10 years ago. We've We've just exploded our membership in that sector. These were all young people, most of whom really had no connection to the labor movement. They work very high tech kind of jobs, all online, often working even pre-pandemic from home, not a centralized workplace. When we went in and started organizing, we thought, boy, how's this gonna work? You know, these are, these are a lot of people under 30, no connection to a traditional workplace or a traditional labor movement mindset. Boy, we were so pleasantly surprised. They are very gung-ho very interested in working together, understand the realities of, you know, if I, if I want to make a career out of this, if I want this job to be something that I can sustain myself and maybe raise a family on, I better get a union and I better come to union meetings and come to bargaining and, and, and offer my support. So it's been really inspiring. And another area we've grown a lot in is podcasts. Podcasts are exploding. You know, you've got one yourself. This is a, this is a great opportunity to sort of go in depth on issues and, and audiences love it. 
And we've got lots of shops now of people who do nonfiction podcasts and even even some fiction podcasts. You know, there's a few of those, like the old radio dramas. So we've been finding that this industry, entertainment, news, podcasts, nonfiction TV, is ready for organizing. And people have been sort of uh, willing to take the risk necessary to sign a union card and say, count me in. Let's get a good contract. We'll help you fight for a good contract. So, yeah, and even during the strike, we brought in we're about we've we brought in a couple of shops during the strike. And we're about to bring in a third one. So I think that this is an energy that's that's feeding on itself as people are saying, hey, you know, this stuff actually works. It's not just some theory. It's not just a bunch of crazy people yelling and screaming. We, I can actually make a better living and have a more secure future if I join the union. So it's been really great. That's fantastic. You mentioned earlier your picket lines. Obviously, you've had folks from a lot of different unions out there marching and and standing with you in solidarity. But I did want to give you the opportunity to uh, anything that that other unions can do, in particular listeners to this podcast, which for the most part are, uh, I would guess, to be union members, mostly NALC members. But what can unions or union members do to continue to support you guys in your efforts? Well, Showing up for picket lines is great. It's it's a shot in the arm. You know, it really, when, when my members are out there, they've been out there for a long time and they see members of other unions come. It's just a, it's a real energy boost. So, I mean, most of the picket lines are in New York and Los Angeles, but we've got them in Chicago and Philadelphia and Atlanta and places like that from time to time. You can contact us, go on WGAContract2023.org. You can find a picket location or, you know, there's a lot of people hurting, not just writers not even just actors, but, you know, crew members and, and people who work in the industry who are not working. And we've been encouraging people to donate money to the Entertainment Community Fund because they they have hardship loans and grants that they can give out to people, make sure that they've got food on the table. So contributing to the ECF or showing up for a picket line, all all good and just talking it up. I mean, we're getting politicians involved. If you, if you happen to be at a Labor Day picnic with a politician, say, hey, support those writers, support those actors. They, they listen to their constituents. Right. Well, uh, Lowell, on behalf of you know our 280,000 members, we are uh, will continue to proudly stand in solidarity with you, brother, and, and, and your members. And you know, once again, I want to really express our appreciation for you taking a few minutes out of your busy schedule. And uh, hopefully you guys get to the finish line here reasonably soon and you can get a little rest before the next battle comes along. But very appreciative of you taking the time to join us today. And I, I know our members will really enjoy hearing from you and uh, anything we can do, feel free to reach out and let us know. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, brother. Your support's very welcome. And, and by the way, I really appreciate the work that your members do uh, I every day, six days a week, seven days a week sometimes. Yeah, increasingly. So. Yep. I appreciate it. And, and thank you, brother. We'll, we'll, yep. we'll get there. We'll get it done. Sounds great. Well, thanks so much. Take care. You too. We are pleased to be joined by the president of the AFL-CIO, Liz Schuler. Hi, Liz. Thanks for taking some time for us. Hi, Brian. Happy Labor Day, and I'm excited to be with you on the podcast today. Yeah, happy Labor Day. I think a lot of our members are familiar you know, with you and your current role as AFL-CIO president, but I think it might be interesting if you uh, gave our listeners a little background info on what you did in the labor movement prior to uh, assuming your current responsibilities. 
Absolutely. Well, I grew up in the labor movement and I was raised in a union household and got my start in the IBEW. And I've actually been in this position with the AFL-CIO as president for a little over two years, but I was secretary treasurer of the National Federation prior to that, as many folks know, as a partner to Rich Trumka. He and I ran together in 2009. But before that, I came up uh, just like many people, you know, working jobs out of school, trying to hone my skills and mainly on on the administrative clerical side of uh, the work. And when I graduated from college, I was in the gig economy of, <laughs> of the day where I was piecing together two and three jobs to make full-time pay. And one of those jobs was working at the electric utility company where my mom worked, my dad worked. It was back in the days, you know, when people worked for companies for their entire careers, generation to generation. And so when I worked there, uh, we tried to organize the clerical workers because the power line men were already in the union, but the clerical workers, you know, didn't have a voice, didn't have the respect that the power line men had. So I saw that duality in my own home, right? When my mom wasn't in the union, my dad was. So unfortunately, when we, uh, the organizing drive that we launched was not successful, but the, it was because of the company you know, coming at us with everything they had to bust the union. And it's not an unfamiliar story for a lot of people who've been organizers and have seen this happen over and over again when companies do everything they can to avoid a union. So after that campaign, I got the union bug. I mean, I was I was in it. I was an organizer and I wanted to do this for the rest of my life. So I ended up going to work for the local union in Portland, Oregon. I guess, as they say, the rest is history. I was doing political activism, organizing, trainings. I built the local union's website. I mean, in those days, you were wearing a lot of hats and then made my career up through the different aspects of the IBEW from the local level on through the international. Yeah, it's interesting how seemingly everyone that's involved in any union or, or the labor movement in general, we all have that story of, of what really motivated us. And I think in most cases, probably still motivates us to this day. So as One Liz thing I didn't mention, sorry, I, I uh, you know, PGE, this little sleepy electric utility company I forgot to mention was bought by Enron. Mm -hmm. um, at one point, and many people may remember Enron. And essentially, when they went into bankruptcy, our local electric utility company, many of our members lost their pensions. And one of those people was my dad. And wow. so that kind of display of corporate greed, which has not changed, I might add in 30 years, was also one of the motivating factors for me to say, we can fight back. And we, the way we do that is in a union, right? So I just wanted to mention that too, because, you know, we're experiencing the same thing today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And we'll get into some of the challenges, but family's important. I, I'm the son of a, a union member. You know, my dad was a letter carrier and, you know, I, I feel very fortunate, as I'm sure you do, to be able to carry that, you know, in the work that uh, we're privileged to do every day. So NALC, um, as we talked about a little earlier in the episode, is as a union, very proud to be an affiliate of the AFL-CIO, which uh, leads the labor movement in this country. And for our listeners that are maybe newer members or, or maybe not as familiar with the AFL itself, could you just give them some background on the history of the Federation and maybe a little bit about current structure and what we do, sort of our role and our purpose in the labor movement and, and really in our, our country as a whole? Absolutely. I never take it for granted these days because there's so many 
young people who really have no association with unions and we're, of course, trying to organize and welcome more people into our movement. We've got quite the alphabet soup in the labor movement. Everyone's got an acronym, including the AFL-CIO. In fact, I went to a, an event recently where someone said, oh, AFLAC. Okay, yeah. That thing with the duck. <laughs> I was like, no, the AFL-CIO. But the AFL-CIO, of course, was two feder- or two yeah labor federations that merged in 1955, the AFL and the CIO, right? The a- American Federation of Labor, Congress of Industrial Organizations, The AFL, in fact, was formed uh, back in the late 1800s, kind of uh, the dawn of the craft unions. And, of course, the CIO, it was in the mid-30s, 1935, formed with the rise of the industrial segment of our economy and looked at a different way of organizing by industry. So there were two different federations that then ultimately found their way to a merger to really build power across the footprint of every union in this country. And obviously our premise is we are stronger when we stand together. And we're so pleased, as you said, Brian, that the NALC is one of 60 unions now in the AFL-CIO. We're 12 and a half million members strong. Every kind of work that you can imagine across the economy, whether it's teachers or construction workers, We even have our athletes in in sports players unions, um, WNBA players most recently, and of course, letter carriers. So we also are starting to see with the evolution of work and how the economy is changing, more people in different kinds of jobs that have never been unionized starting to look at forming unions. You know, we're seeing workers in video game development and cannabis industry, tech, baristas uh, and coffee shops. So I think it's a really exciting time. But when you think about the purpose of our federation, it's essentially to help every working person in this country live a life with dignity, good pay, a safe work environment, to be able to have a roof over your head and some predictability in your lives with good health care and, you know, secure retirement and uh, predictable scheduling, the list goes on and on. But the way we do that is by helping each other and helping workers organize on the ground, which is the thing that our secretary treasurer, Fred Redmond, and I wake up every morning thinking about organizing, making our voice heard in in the halls of Washington with legislative advocacy, you know, mobilizing for political power so that workers' voices are heard in their communities and that their elected officials know where we stand. And, you know, we're in this incredible moment that I think is a pivotal moment for our movement. And we think the AFL-CIO is that center of gravity for working people who are looking for a better future and a better life. Yeah, I think you made an excellent point there that, that may not be as widely known. Uh, one of the, the large pieces of the purpose of the Federation is not just for current union members, but to advance the interest of all workers in this country. And that we happen to believe that the way to do that is through unions and through organizing. And and we've got, over, as you said, over 12 million people. They're living proof of that. So 
you know, our larger purpose is not just selfish in terms of our, our own unions, but really for, for all workers in this country. And it's a really exciting time for that kind of stuff. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But as we know, throughout our history, and I, when I say our history, I mean the history of this country, workers have always faced challenges. And while we have a lot of positive momentum that we'll get to in a minute, we still have new challenges that come every day and increasing challenges. For example, within our union, we are dealing with a, an alarming increase in crime against our members. All workers that work outside are dealing with the dangers of extreme heat, just as a couple of examples. But in the larger labor movement itself, even though we face challenges, I guess, since the beginning of time, what are a couple of big challenges that are right at the forefront of our priorities right now that, that we're working on as we look forward, you know, both in the present and the kind of short term future? Well, and your members are absolute heroes. And I have knocked on doors in communities with your members, you know, when we're doing education efforts, we are, I've heard stories, letter carriers, of course, are the best canvassers, because um, they have such experience being yep, on the ground. We, are. In communities. <laughs> um, we know where I to go. Heard, I have heard horror story after horror story of the threats and, you know, the attacks against your members and their resilience is absolutely stunning. And so I just have to say that off the top that, you know, worker safety has to be fundamental. I mean, that is a baseline uh, that we stand for in the labor movement, especially for frontline essential workers like your members, whether it's public transit workers, you know, flight attendants, so many of our members who during the pandemic were called heroes and are now seeing these horrific attacks from the public. It's absolutely unacceptable. So we want to be there, to be the enforcer, to hold companies accountable so that they're putting every possible protection in place. We want to hold, you know, our government and our politicians accountable so that the violators, the perpetrators are punished as strongly as possible. And we need to create a culture of not just respect, but deep appreciation for what our workers are doing on behalf of the American public. I just want to say that off the top. But in terms of challenges on the horizon, I mean, we have a number of very, you know, large and important challenging times in front of us, but a lot of opportunity. And so climate, you touched on climate change, the heat that many workers are facing and it's not just this summer, but certainly in the last few years, but going forward, this is the new normal. It's just the beginning. So we're fighting for those protections, you know, day-to-day -day ways that we can help workers do their jobs safely. We need to take on the climate crisis. So we as a labor movement have a, you know, it's never been an easy issue for us to tackle because we have workers in so many different aspects of our energy industry and, you know, some of the industries that are directly impacted. But we stand very clearly with working people, whether you're in an energy transition, you know, as a worker or workers who are being faced with these extreme weather events um, and everything in between. We think it, this change runs right through the labor movement and whether it's floods that we've seen in Vermont, wildfires in Hawaii, certainly the hurricanes, it is absolutely brutal and it is a workplace issue. The other big challenge we have in front of us is the future of work and the changes coming with technology, right? There's a lot of fear out there about uh, artificial intelligence, automation. I mean, certainly your industry has been dealing with this. 
people have these concerns about what is it going to do to my job? And that is absolutely valid. But I want to say this, that the labor movement, you know, we can't stop technology, but we can make sure that working people are at the center of this change, that we have a seat at the table, that we are the ones coming up with the bargaining language and the guardrails and protections to make sure that these technologies don't dehumanize us, but instead make our jobs better and safer. I've been hearing a lot about Amazon workers, you know, and these warehouses where they are not even able to go to the bathroom because they are being managed by an algorithm that is monitoring literally every second of their lives and, you know, their wrist movements and everything. So we think there's a better way forward and we want workers to have a seat at the table in how tech and AI are used. And again, that it's not used to degrade us and dehumanize us, but to make our lives better. And so that's what we're busy thinking about over at the AFL-CIO and our Technology Institute. Yeah, it's a big thing. We earlier in this episode, we spoke with Lowell Peterson, the executive director of the Writers Guild of America East, and uh, we talked a good bit about AI. And I can tell you the letter carriers listening to this podcast are familiar with the impacts of technology and the type of management you described um, in an Amazon facility and, and fighting back against that kind of stuff. Well, with those challenges, I think the good news is that this is a very energizing and exciting time for workers and exciting time for unions. Frankly, we've seen a lot of victories through tough fights in terms of organizing and collective bargaining through across multiple industries. And we talked about this before we started recording, but I'm 43 years old and I don't think I, in my lifetime, I've felt like unions in our movement as a whole have the type of momentum, you know, that we have right now. And as we've experienced that for a number of reasons that you may want to get into, I guess the the question is really what's next for the labor movement and how do we continue to embrace some of the victories that we've seen in in organizing and collective bargaining and so on and, and build on that to just build a better future for all workers. Well, I couldn't agree more. And you're 43. I'm 53. So I'm a little older than you. But I have not seen this kind of momentum in my 30 years in the labor movement. I mean, it is tremendous. And you look at this year alone, we've had more than 200 strikes so far this year already. I think that involves around 320,000 workers. So it's pretty big numbers. And that's 10 times more than even just two years ago. And it's every industry, it's every, you know, red state, blue state, um, everything in between. We uh, just released some poll numbers leading into this Labor Day weekend. And we have the numbers, the data tells us that now 71%, that's more than two thirds of Americans support unions right now. We And 88% of workers under the uh, age of 30 support unions as well. 88%. You know how hard it is to get anyone to agree at that (laughs) on anything at two thirds or 88%. But the reason that is, is because they are seeing unions out there fighting for, you know, better wages, better conditions for dignity, for respect secure jobs. Most workers that I talk to that aren't in unions are feeling the insecurity. They're feeling 
precarious. They're, you know, feeling vulnerable. And it's very disheartening to think that there's nothing you can do about it. Well, there is something you can do about it. And that's joined together in a union. And so they see, you know, nurses that went into the hospitals during the pandemic and were told to wear garbage bags and then walked out and then came back in with the PPE they needed because of their union. And so that's just one example I use because collective bargaining is the tool that we can use to make sure that workers get what they need. And so what I think is is next, I guess, is just turning all of that momentum into actual numbers and actual strength within our movement so that we organize like never before. We get out of our comfort zones and we start showing people in jobs that are traditionally have, have never heard of unions that there's power in a union and you can form a union in any type of job in any part of the economy. We're going to help young people do that. All these, you know, 88% of young people that want to join a union and may not know how. That's where we as organizers across, you know, the AFL-CIO and the 60 unions I mentioned, we can be the source for that information. We can be the folks who connect the dots for the people who are so hungry to join our movement. And so I hope everyone listening here will lend out a, a helpful hand, reach out to workers around them, show them the power of what it means to be in a union. For sure. So last thing, this is a special Labor Day episode of this podcast. And Labor Day is, of course, very important to us as union people. You know, and in in unions and in the labor movement, we love to celebrate anniversaries and history and things like that. In fact, our union uh, just celebrated our 134th anniversary last week. But I think it's also very important. Thank you. <laughs> I think it's also very important that we, you know, embrace that history, but also take advantage of every moment that we have. And Labor Day is a very important time of year for us. I know we have discussed and, and you guys have spent a lot of time preparing for and, and done some things this week with kind of our Labor Day theme at the AFL-CIO, and that is that it's better in a union. And I want to give you an opportunity to tell our listeners, you know, really what that means. I think it might be a little self-explanatory, but <laughs> just maybe a little more about what we're honoring, what we're celebrating on this Labor Day in 2023. Absolutely. And you and I know, Brian, that Labor Day is not just the last barbecue of the summer. It's not just back to school. It is Labor's Day. And we're turning mm -hmm. it into Labor's Week. And, you know, we might even go further next year and make it Labor's Month. But <laughs> we know the history. We know what our unions have fought for over time. And yes, it's a, a day to celebrate this year, you know, all this new and fresh energy that's in our movement right now and how fired up people are and, and how public opinion is so overwhelmingly on our side. But there, it's also about all of the people whose shoulders on which we stand and, you know, all of the strikes and, and activism and mobilizing of the past. And then fast forward to today, you know, the collective action we're seeing in a way we haven't in a long time. I mean, our UAW brothers and sisters and siblings are, you know, 13 days away from a strike deadline. Um, of course, we saw the Teamsters at UPS, the contract they were able to get with renewed uh, member engagement and 
Of course, our SAG-AFTRA and WGA members who are out there putting it all on the line, we're talking about unionizing in a way that we haven't in, in, in the past. And, and now we're turning to companies like, you know, Starbucks and Google and Apple, <laughs> you know, we're talking about organizing workers there. So it is just this through line that we're trying to show people this Labor Day that we have this rich history, but this promise of the future. And it's unions are timeless. And our theme, it's better in a union, is just sort of a simple way of saying, you know, look around and see that union difference, what it means to you, what it means to your family, and, and what it means to reclaim your power from these companies who have exploited you, right? And so I think whether you're looking back over history or at the modern day labor movement, unions have always been what drives change. And so whether it's, you know, I, as I said in my uh, State of the Unions address, whether it's, you know, 19th century women in textile mills or, or 20th century African-American sleeping car porters or 21st century tech workers, you always trace it back to a couple of 20-somethings who were fed up <laughs> and who started a spark and, um, you know, formed a union and were willing to put it all on the line. And that's exactly what's happening now. And we're celebrating that same spirit today. And it's all about opening our doors wider than ever and, and building this labor movement for the future. Yeah, awesome. Just a, a note from me to, to all our listeners out there, and I can speak, I know this from a personal perspective. Liz is a, a wonderful union sister, friend, leader, and all workers in this country are uh, very fortunate to have her as, as the leader of not just the AFL-CIO, but the labor movement um, in this and country. And likewise Liz, to you, Brian. Thank you. Thank you. I know we're, we're out of time, but I just want to tell you how much we appreciate. And I know my members and our listeners will um, appreciate you taking some time to join us and happy Labor Day. Happy Labor Day. All right. Now it's time for your the Ask the Mailbag segment. Put your questions in for the mailbag segment at socialandnalc.org. First one up is from Luke Cotter from Branch 290. Could you guys go into more depth about the SNDC Spoken Hub plan and how exactly adding more travel time to every route is going to be saving the post office any money? The plant near me is scheduled to become an LPC. Does that mean the carriers in my city will all be moving out there? Interesting timing of the question. So our next episode, next week, will be um, dedicated to talking about SNDCs and, and the 10-year plan. So um, in that episode, we'll get in depth about what it looks like. And, and so I, I'll, instead of spending this time to really get in depth, I'll just encourage you to listen to that episode next week. I think it'll answer most of your questions. Um, I, I will tell you that the plan is not only about saving money. Uh, I know that's um, a departure from what we've seen from the Postal Service for, I don't know, probably forever, honestly. <laughs> that everything is simply about saving money. Um, it is about becoming more efficient, but it's, uh, it's, it's really about matching the capacity to process and deliver mail and service to the current mail mix and the service that we need to provide. And, and our network as it exists right now is not really designed to handle the modern mail mix of parcels and, and, that, and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, it's not just about saving money, and, and the Postal Service is well aware that 
as they implement these, they are going to add travel time to city carrier routes. Um, and, and we've, as you'll hear on the next episode, we've negotiated agreements about how that how that works. So again, listen to that and then, uh, and get in depth. As far as like the specific circumstance of you know having an LPC, does that mean you're going to move? I guess the short answer is maybe. <laughs> But I, I will tell you that if, um, as the Postal Service starts to prepare to bring these online, we have a lot of communication with them. We talk to the local branch and through the NBA office, and we look into all the details we possibly can to um, try to ensure that we resolve any issues. So, you know, if there's if you or your route or, or your work location is going to be relocated due to one of these. Um, you will know that well, well, well in advance. And you'll hear it not just from the Postal Service or people on the workroom floor. You'll definitely hear it from your branch, and, and you'll hear it from us as we go through. And, again, we get into that in depth in, in the next episode, so I encourage you to listen there. Our next question is from Chris Baker, Branch 84, Pittsburgh. Being that the CPI index came out on August 10th, and it's now August 21st, will this also be included in our back pay? Hopefully this is being worked at into negotiations for a contract. And one last question. Why does our back pay not include overtime? Thanks. Let's talk about the colon and what you're referring to is our 2019 agreement pays cost of living increases based on the CPI index from January and July, those two of each year that are included in the agreement. The final cost of living increase under the 2019 agreement came from the January 2023 CPI release. What you are referencing is the July um, 2023 CPI release. When we do reach an agreement, be that through tentative agreement or or interest arbitration, whichever direction we, we end up having to go to get an agreement that's fair for our members, I can't make any guarantees, but I feel very strongly that that COLA formula and that COLA timeline would remain. If indeed that is the case, and then the, a cost of living increase that took place, you know, an agreement that became effective this past May, which is what our agreement will be, would be included in your back pay. As far as the question about back pay not including overtime, that is inaccurate. Uh, anytime, at least the, the three agreements that, that I've been a part of negotiating, and this will be the fourth here, you know, whenever we are paid back pay, um, as a result of a new collective bargaining agreement, you will be paid back pay for all hours that you work, straight time, overtime, penalty time, whatever that was. So it's whatever you actually worked. And, and then, of course, if you were on leave, that pay rate is just is adjusted and back pay you know, is paid for every hour that you work, regardless of, of what, uh, whether you're on straight time, overtime or whatever. Bill Folks had a question. He's unsure about open season. Is he going to be forced to take a new medical plan? Yeah, so Bill, we uh, back three or four episodes ago, I did a full episode on the implementation of the Postal Service Reform Act, which is what you're referencing there. The short answer to your question is, yes, you're going to have to change plans, but chances are if you've got a high option plan, hopefully you have the NELC plan, you'll basically get the same plan. It just as a matter of and administrative for administrative reasons of implementing the bill, it'll still be under FEB, the Federal Employees Health Benefit Program, but within a subset that's only postal employees. So go back and listen to that episode, and I go through in depth everything that'll happen 
with everyone and that should uh, if you give that a listen that should explain everything that you need to know and answer your question so now we have our last question of the day it comes from jeremy swift out in branch 466 in indiana he wants to know what the status of the 2023 rap session is branches need to make plans as would-be attendees and it seems that it's getting late in the year do we have any information on the 2023 rap session jeremy your question is very timely Um, So as this podcast is released, uh, you will uh, hopefully, as you listen to this, if you haven't already, you will see on the NALC website um, the announcement and information about the RAP session. So it will take place um, this November in New Orleans, Louisiana, be at the Hilton Riverside. If you've ever been to New Orleans, most people are familiar with with that hotel. Um, the dates will be Friday, November 17th will be registration. There will be a welcome reception for uh, everyone that attends all day, Saturday, November 18th. We will have workshops and, and training for the folks to, uh, to attend. And then our, the rap session at pl- itself will take place on Sunday morning, November 19th, starting at 8 AM. Our, Goal is to be done by 11 a.m. A lot of folks that are able to, to maybe get flights that afternoon or evening um, can get out of there. So uh, no reason to be concerned about there being hotel rooms or any of that stuff. Um, it's a big, giant union hotel. We've got plenty of rooms for everyone. All the information on how to book your rooms is is there available and on the website. We encourage every branch that's out there to uh, make plans, you know, for your president state association to attend. This will be an important event because we've got not only our training that we do, but we've got a couple of, of very important programs going forward that we intend to roll out having to do with some training for next year uh, and also with our letter care political fund. So look forward to seeing you there. That was our Ask the Mailbag segment. If you have a question, you can reach us at social at NALC.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of You Are the Current Resident Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss an episode. And please share the podcast with our NALC brothers and sisters. You can follow the NALC on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and threads. You can find links to our accounts in the episode's description. And you can follow President Renfro on Twitter at BrianRenfro19. Again, if you have any questions to submit or have feedback about the podcast, you can email us at social at NALC.org. May your steward be by your side and your union have your back. Thanks for listening. See you next week.